This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. And joining me today is Kimberly Kendall Corral, a criminal defense attorney at KimLawCrimLaw.com based out of Cleveland, Ohio, where she handles multiple criminal defense cases that sometimes will boggle your mind, like the case of Michael Thompson, which we will talk about today. Thank you for your time, Kim, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This mind-boggling case that you worked on, the case of Michael, uh, what struggles do you think you faced in pursuing the case of Michael Thompson? The hardest thing about Michael's case, I think for me, was three pounds of marijuana arrest. He was sentenced for a number of different reasons, but he was sentenced to 42 to 60 years. And I think the difficulty for me in that case is it's so the right thing to do, the just thing to do, the moral thing to do, the ethical thing to do is so abundantly obvious that I really had a hard time understanding how Michael had been to the parole board before and um, not been granted clemency, how the criminal justice system just in 25 years had no way to correct itself. That I think was the biggest difficulty for me is just understanding how in what we consider to be a fair justice system or what some consider to be a fair justice system, there was no remedy for the nightmare of injustice that Michael was caught in. Yeah, because what blew my mind was to find out that somebody can get 25 years in prison for selling three pounds of marijuana when there are murderers running around free. So Michigan law allows for a sentencing enhancement if you have have prior convictions. And so that enhancement, a repeat offender enhancement, allowed them to take a charge which otherwise carries five years, a maximum of five years, and and it enhances the potential sentence to a maximum of life. And in this case, the judge gave him 60 years. And so if you talk to proponents or to someone who would defend Michael's case, they would say, well, he was a repeat offender, but all of his offenses were drug-related. None of them were crimes of violence. He's never alleged to have hurt anyone. And he had served sentences for those prior petty drug crimes. And the notion that three pounds of weed would result in a life sentence is truly appalling. The other thing that happened in his case is there's a legal fiction called constructive possession. In Michael's case, there were some antique guns in a locked gun safe in a closet in his house. He was not at his house. He never had the gun in his possession. He didn't brandish the gun or threaten anybody with a gun, but he had guns locked in his house. And because they searched his house after arresting him for the sale of the weed, he was charged with those guns. And that was also used to enhance his sentence. But wasn't there an affidavit from his wife saying that the guns belonged to her? In fact, all of the guns but one, I believe, were registered to her. But and she and she te- it's not just an affidavit. She testified in court that they were hers. Uh, but obviously, the jury believed that they belonged to Michael or that he had access to them. And because it was his house that he lived with her, the fact that he could access the guns or that the jury believed that um, renders him guilty of possession under the law. If somebody is a repeat offender uh, when it comes to drug-related offenses, wouldn't you think that we would need to help this guy in some sort of a way 
to give him uh, support rather than just pick him up and dump him in a prison for 60 years and let him die there. Of course, of course. And we can look to other nations which have a much more rehabilitative goal in their in their criminal justice system. And we see that rehabilitation actually works. It reduces recidivism, whereas mass incarceration does not. Um, you know, the effect of Michael's incarceration was not only seen by him, but it increases the chance that his children uh, end up incarcerated, that um, other family members end up incarcerated. And so when we take one person out of the out of society and lock them away, it's a triggering effect that lasts for generations. And so, of course, rehabilitation should be the objective of our system, but it is not. And I think that's evident in Michael's case where he was developing rehabilitation programs within the prison system. He was teaching those programs. They had been successful. And then uh, they sh- the prison shut them down. What about the fact that in case of Michael and, and individuals like him, where there, where, where there is clear evidence that, you know, this conviction is unjust or harsh. And yet when people like yourself and other advocacy groups try to work for these guys and get them out, and it takes years and years for them to be released, what is that? Is that racism or is that the sloppiness of the system? So to look at somebody's case and to see how everything went wrong is a very nuanced, it's a, it's a nuanced process. It takes time and understanding. You have to look at everything that happened in the case. You have to look at someone's life before they were incarcerated and what they've done since to make a determination that someone is more than their conviction. But if you're a prosecutor, all you have to do is stand up and say, this person was selling drugs, we need to keep Americans safe, we need to be tough on crime. There's a lot of buzzwords. He was convicted by a jury. It's That is a very easy narrative. And it colors people in either being guilty or not guilty, but no range of anything in between. So no one can be measured by their, the worst thing they've ever done. Not one of us should be measured that way. But when we talk about criminal justice and when you hear kind of this tough on crime discussion, we use even language that labels people by their worst choice. And the fact of the matter is no one wanted, would want to be labeled by their worst choice, but we use words like felon, prisoner, inmate, And so what we're doing is dehumanizing all of the important aspects of a person that we need to consider to rehabilitate them and restore them into society as productive citizens. And we're minimizing that all down to just this person is nothing more than this conviction or this bad thing they've done. I read recently that Michael had to wash his clothes in the toilet. So I I couldn't understand that. Does the justice system aim to heal and rehabilitate individuals or punish and humiliate them even more uh, after they've been incarcerated? I have not seen examples, good examples. I've seen some, but I've seen very few good examples of how incarceration in America is designed and intended to actually rehabilitate. When Michael was washing his clothes in the toilet, part of that had to do with there was a pandemic going on, the 
prison system didn't know how to handle the pandemic, wasn't equipped to handle the pandemic. And that meant stop being the movement of all things in the prison, including laundry. Michael did get COVID in prison and he's 69 years old. He was at high risk. So he was doing everything he could to avoid that and putting his clothes in the laundry and having to interact with all of the people along that process put him at significantly higher risk and led him to like the only real option he had was to wash his clothes in the toilet. Wow. And he also was, you know, ordering new underwear and making masks out of underwear to try and keep himself safe. It just put me in a difficult spot thinking that, you know, how would one wash their clothes in the toilet because it's dirty. And then um, it was kind of sad and sickening at the same time. It's sad and sickening. And you think we're not measuring a person by the worst thing they've ever done. Michael earned an award from the NAACP for his contributions to his community. He received the keys to the city from the mayor. He had done really incredible things in Flint. He was in his 40s when this happened, when he was incarcerated for this case. And so we're talking about someone who had, at one time, uh, helped employ 200 gang members within the city into legitimate employment. And so they, to draw young people away from gangs, he'd done great things for his community. And here he is at 69 years old. So, you know, for a lot of us, that's our parents or our grandparents. As he's aging, he's left to wash his clothes in the toilet, to wear underwear across his face as a mask to keep himself safe because he's at significant risk there. You know, for 20 straight years, he didn't have a visitor because in order to have a visitor, you're subjected to strip search. So when I went to see Michael, when I started working on his case, I was the first visitor he'd had in just about two decades. Wow. And so the notion that, you know, in order to see a family member, you have to be stripped naked, you have to squat and cough, you have to be treated like like cattle. It was so indignifying that he would rather isolate himself. And that is one of the objectives of prison, to isolate people from their friends and family so that even the thought of going home makes people like they feel like they're going home to nothing. They're incarcerated hours and hours from where their convictions are from, where their families are from, and their families don't have access to travel for visitation. Every part of the system is designed to isolate people who are incarcerated from their loved ones, from society, to isolate them from resources, and to dehumanize them. You think that is a good strategy? No, it's a terrible strategy. I mean, one example is I wanted to take a picture with Michael. And the first time I went to the prison, I, I asked and they said I could take a picture with him. Any visitor can take a picture with someone. It's cost $3 with an incarcerated person. And you stand in front of a background that maybe another prisoner had painted. But they're like, well, you're a lawyer, so you can't. That's weird. Like, I can't take a picture with my client just standing next to him. No, we don't allow it. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to do was get a picture with him that wasn't a mugshot mm. so that when his story was being told in the media, he could be treated like a person. Beautiful. And they they wouldn't even allow that. Because I was a lawyer who cared about my client. No, that's weird. We're not going to allow it. Wow. And I went all the way up to the warden just merely to take a picture with him, which is something that would have been allowed if I had been his girlfriend, if I had been his mother or his sister. But because I was a lawyer who was trying to change the narrative about my client to, to humanize him. No, no pictures allowed. 
So what did you do then? And so the first time they allowed it, but the second time they, they just wouldn't. And I, I just found that so shocking. You're listening to Fair Play, the official podcast of justicenews.net. This is Fair Play on justicenews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play on justicenews.net. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui, and I'm talking to Kimberly Kendall Corral. She's a criminal defense attorney at kimlawcrimlaw.com. And we were talking about the case of Michael Thompson, and we were also looking at the overall justice system in the United States. So what's going on with him now? So many good things. So Michael, he is community-oriented. You know, I think maybe if I had been wrongfully incarcerated for 25 years, I would be like sitting on my couch eating Cheerios, watching TV, doing whatever I wanted that I wanted, you know, Mm. Um, just lazing around maybe or traveling or whatever. But Michael's just really committed to giving back to others, which I think says so much about him. He's not about getting out and just doing what he wants. He's about getting out and, uh, you know, making an impact that other people don't end up where he is. And so that other people who are already where he is have a voice on the outside. That's just fantastic. I I wish him all the best and I wish to have him on the show as well one day. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think he'd be down, but I love he'll call me and say, Kim, I got I'm doing this, this and this this week. I'm talking to, you know, the Coalition of Mothers of Incarcerated People. I'm talking to the governor's office. And, you know, he's lobbying for better rights for incarcerated people. He's just doing truly amazing work. That's beautiful. And and to be honest, he's not totally free because he's still under parole. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. He needs to work with the parole officer. How would that work? So he's under the authority of the parole, so he's still not restored to his complete rights. As, as a citizen, um, and that means he needs permission to, to travel, he needs permission to leave the state, he, he needs to constantly register his employment, his address, he's subject to um, random drug testing, he's subject to stop-bys from his parole officer, and if he violates any of these things, he doesn't even have to break a law, but if he violates any of these things, he can be sent back to prison. And when will this end? Four years. They give him the max time of parole. So there's no way that this could be pushed back? It certainly could. In Michigan, as with any state, the governor has the authority to entirely commute a sentence. In this case, the governor, and in Michigan's whole history, historically in Michigan, when a governor has commuted a sentence, they commute it to parole which still gives the parole board the authority to not let them out, to let them out under conditions of post-release control or parole, um, and up to a max of four years. And in this case, Michael got the maximum. Wow. Yeah, it's never enough. I was going to say, I think the parole board was trying to hold out. They're like, oh, we're just doing this to support him. But I can say, personally, my experience for people who are released into parole is that the parole board is not a support mechanism, but a mechanism to maintain control, to limit their rights, and to strong arm the threats with reincarceration if they don't do everything set out for them. Yeah, I mean, it's been 24 years. The guy's done more than enough. Let him go. I mean, parole for a 70-year-old man, you know, on a uh, marijuana 
charge. Does this smell like, uh, excuse my language, but bullshit? Certainly, but it's not bullshit that's new. I, I had an exoneration two years ago where the client was exonerated. He was found to be innocent of the crime. And when they released him from prison, after his exoneration, they put him on an ankle monitor for four months. Wow. And so this is something that, yeah, it's total bullshit. You wonder how reasonable minds can, can reach this. Like 12 people on the parole board voted for this. 12. But 25 years isn't enough. Let's also maintain control for another four. And that's the frustrating part of the work for me is I just can't relate to that mindset. I can't put myself in their shoes to see how they're coming up with what they're coming up with. What do you think is the future of Michael? I mean, do you think he's going to be stuck in that? He, he for, for the rest of his remaining life, he'll be branded as a ex-felon and uh, he's going to be forever stuck into this until he dies? Yeah, one of the things that this did is it wrote his story for him and you can't undo that. Who he is now is he's the guy who got a essentially a life sentence for marijuana and remained incarcerated in a state where marijuana was legal for ongoing years, even after it was legalized. And so that's his story. I think in some ways that's also maybe his a part of his path to, to who he's really meant to be, which I think is just a social advocate and a, a game changer and a storyteller um, for change and a proponent for change in his community. But yeah, I think it'll he'll never escape this label. Now he will use that label as as an agent for change. But when we incarcerated him for life, we put a label on him that I don't think he can ever shake. It's like an asterisk. It's which I try not to do, but if you read the comments under some of the articles that are written about him, people are like, "Oh, well, what about the guns? What about this? What about this?" As if to justify that, like, he got a break by being able to come home in 25 years and how that mindset persists within the United States is very difficult for me to understand and relate to. I mean, you're pretty brave to be, uh, you know, speaking your mind because a lot of the attorneys that I know don't speak like this. You're fearless, which is probably one of the reasons why you win cases. In, in that case, you can sometimes make enemies and you can sometimes, I'm counseled by other attorneys who will sometimes say, who I deeply respect, who have mentors me, you can't burn every bridge, Kim. You've got to play nice sometimes. And certainly I try to play nice and I'm polite to people and I don't just stomp around screaming, but my ethical obligation is to my clients. And if my clients are wrongfully incarcerated, that's not something you can sit down and talk about quietly and reasonably. I mean, these are people's lives. I think about clients who have been wrongfully incarcerated that hired me before I had children. And now my children, you know, my oldest is starting kindergarten. And you think her whole life, this person has just been sitting and waiting me to waiting for me to finish my job. I owe it to them to speak the truth about what I'm up against in this system and what they're up against in this system and what their families and their communities are up against in this system. You're absolutely right. And I would debate anybody anytime because if someone wants to come and explain to me that what I'm saying is unreasonable and that the system is fair, then point it out to me, show me, and then let me show you. This is Fair Play on justicenews.net. 
This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui, and I'm talking to Kimberly Kendall Corral. She's a criminal defense attorney at KimLawCrimLaw.com. And we were talking about the case of Michael Thompson, and we were also looking at the overall justice system in the United States. How does it feel to be living in the world's biggest prison? Because according to the U.S. Bureau of Justice statistics, the United States is the largest jailer in the world. So how does it feel? It feels like moving sand on the beach. Like I, when you get one person out, which if I had gotten one person out and that was it, that would be enough for a career. I mean, it's such an exceptional achievement and it's so hard to do within the system. But then you think like, well, what we're trying to do is change the landscape of criminal justice and what I have done, pouring my heart and soul into one case for years at a time is move one grain of sand. And it's very overwhelming to think about how do you change the landscape if you can move one grain of sand at a time. But, you know, to my clients who are in this analogy, the grain of sand that's been moved, it echoes outward. Like one of my clients was exonerated, then, you know, he's restored with his family. Getting one person out echoes love and positivity and change in a community that takes a small step to restore the injustice and the loss and the unfairness of his wrongful incarceration. And, you know, that's true of Michael, too. He's going to make a lot of positive change. I mean, but what we need is like a change in the whole foundation of this system. And what would you say to those individuals who say that, hey, You know, if you have issues about the U.S. justice system, travel the world and see what other countries are doing. And then you come back and you say that, hey, I'm thankful that uh, I'm thankful to God that I'm in the U.S. What would you say to those people? I would say there's always worse examples, but but this is one case when there aren't many in the United States. We still have capital punishment. We stand with uh, communist China, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia. We don't stand with African dictatorships, we don't stand, those are countries that also have capital punishment. Nowhere in South America has capital punishment. Nowhere in North America, nowhere in Europe. So we stand alone with these nations that I don't think we hold out as tenants of justice. I would say, please travel. Please look at what incarceration looks like in Uh, European nations. Please look at what incarceration looks like in other places where rehabilitation is not just lip service, but an actual intended part of the incarceration system. So, yeah, I mean, sure. Okay. You want, what do you want to compare us to, you know, North Korea? Okay. Our system is fairer than theirs. That does not make our system fair. There are systems that are less just than ours. That does not make our system just. And in the United States, we rate, we pride ourselves on being the best. We have a lot of work to do if we want to hold ourselves out in that manner. I have 16-year-old boys who are convicted and sentenced to 28 years for robbing somebody of a cell phone. I mean, this happens in America today all the time. A 16-year-old boy uh, for stealing a cell phone gets 25 years. Is that what you say? He got 23, yeah. It was two cell phones. 
Mm-hmm. He, had a, he had a friend. That's ridiculous. But that's not the worst case I have. I mean, I could go, I could, we could spend six hours with me being like, listen to this one. How crazy is this? Oh, in this case, you know, the elected prosecutor in the county was having an affair with a witness and put a police tail on her unless she changed her story to wrongfully incarcerate someone. Or in this case, you know, a child was held without food, without shoes, without a shirt, with three police officers for an 18-hour interrogation where he wasn't allowed to eat or drink anything. He was handcuffed the whole time. They typed up a statement and told him he could go home to his mom. If he signed it, he did. He was convicted. He got a life in prison for a crime that there is no other evidence he committed. I could go on like this all day long. And these are the cases that you uh, handled yourself? These are a fraction of my cases. Yeah. Kim, you know, we don't hear about these stories because, you know, uh, the mainstream networks don't want to put them out. So people don't know what you're talking about. I also think there's too many stories to tell. I mean, I probably right now have 60 clients. I don't like to limit it to just innocence claims because I think wrongful conviction is like a better umbrella term because there are people who did some of what they're charged with mm. but are so grossly overcharged or oversentenced. Like in Michael's case, this is not an innocence case, but it is a wrongful conviction. Mm. The number of cases I have like that where I'm looking at the case and going, how is this person incarcerated? How have they remained incarcerated? Why can't the criminal justice system fix itself? And why? are prosecutors pursuing, protecting these convictions. I have one where they hid 87 photos of the crime scene, including evidence that somebody else was there. We appeal, they, they lose the 87 pictures we just found after my client's done 30 years. The victim's family wants him out. The, there's overwhelming evidence that he's not guilty. And yet, after 30 years, they're still fighting, 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 fighting to maintain that conviction. And I can't, for the life of me understand what the motivation is, except they don't want to lose. But the objective should be justice, not conviction. The objective should be fairness, not finality. This is Fair Play on justicenews.net. This is Fair Play on justicenews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui, and I'm talking to Kimberly Kendall Corral. She's a criminal defense attorney at KimLawCrimLaw.com. And we were talking about the case of Michael Thompson, and we were also looking at the overall justice system in the United States. I just wanted to get your take on your own journey, you know, going back probably 10, 11 years when you left law school, and now you're a professional attorney. So how do you think your journey has been so far when now you're you're dealing with cases in real life? I'm white, blonde hair in America. I grew up in the suburbs um, where racial issues in America were largely taught to me in a historical context. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King came along and ended uh, any kind of racism or, or disparate treatment amongst races. And I just thought that was true for a large part of my life. And so because I, being white, hadn't been really exposed to racism. And so for me, my journey in the criminal justice system has very largely just been this never-ending recognition of, in my case, privilege, and in the case of my clients, just this constant disparate treatment within the justice system and with, within, you know, basically all the social constructs that eventually lead to 
participation in the justice system. And when I ask you, justice has no color, what, what comes to your mind? <laughs> you know, I laugh, but not in like a funny way. It just, I think color is the predominant determining factor of how justice is allocated in the United States. What is your understanding of the U.S. justice system then? So I think the system, the design of the system is not inherently awful, but it fails to take into consideration all of our pre-existing judgments. And so when you have a jury that doesn't come from the same background, that doesn't share the same experiences, that um, you get you get outcomes that are inherently unjust. When you have judges who can look at one defendant and say, without even consciously thinking this, but they look at one defendant and say, I can relate to that person. That person reminds me of my own self or my granddaughter or my own child, and they can work through this and still have something to offer. And then they look at someone who looks different than them and see them as totally un- irredeemable. In that way, our system fails us because it fails to consider how unfairly justice is allocated, even in a system which, in which the procedure is intended to be fair. So do you think the U.S. justice system is fair and impartial? I don't think that anybody with any ability for critical thought would think that that's true. But what about those cases where justice has been given? or fought for. So there are certainly occasions of justice. There may even be a lot of them, but the result is not a system that's fair. It's not a system that's fair for everybody. Wow. And I think if we look at the statistics of incarceration, we can show that factually and scientifically and statistically show that it is not fair and impartial, that the result of the system working the way it works now is to incarcerate black men at a significantly higher rate than any other class of people. So that means that you would agree with some of the data and the critics arguing that uh, the racial disparities in the U.S. justice system hurts blacks more than any other race. I think the, if you analyze the data, that I don't even think that's an opinion statement. I think it's just a fact. What do you suggest should be the recourse to get justice for those who are in prison wrongly or unjustly? But have wrongful convictions. So I think one of the biggest problems we have is that the justice system doesn't have like a, a reasonable way to correct itself. We have appeals which measure whether the the rules of court were followed, whether the procedure was followed. And that is important. I'm not minimizing that. But when it comes to new evidence, evidence that wasn't presented, evidence that was um, withheld by the prosecutors, there are 10,000 different procedural hurdles that someone has to meet to be able to even get consideration on it on the merits. So I have cases where the real killer has admitted to doing it and I just can't even get the court to get to the actual claim because they'll say, well, you filed too late. You didn't, this guy should have come forward sooner. This should have happened. That should have happened. And all of the reasons that the client loses have nothing to do with the evidence against them. They just have to do with the fact that, you know, someone didn't recant soon enough or that, well, he recanted now, but we believed him in, you know, 2003. So we're not going to upset the conviction. 
even though it's wrong. Right. But they don't even get to whether the conviction is right or wrong because the rules of court don't allow the judges to even get to that point because of all of the procedural doors slammed in front of the client. You know, in Ohio, 90 days after your direct appeal is over, you're almost procedurally defaulted from every type of filing, which means when someone comes forward later, when new evidence comes forward, when new science comes forward, when concepts of justice change. You know, in the 90s when Michael was sentenced, politicians were talking about being tough on crime and super criminals and repeat offenders. But since then, we've realized, oh, actually, this system of mass incarceration and egregious sentencing is not effective and laws have changed, but that didn't change Michael's circumstances and the law didn't give us a way to fight that. I mean, if you look at Michael's case, it's legal. Everything that happened to him is legal and it's still legal today. Today, if those facts happened again, he could still be sentenced that egregiously. And that's why he couldn't win an appeal because it was a legal sentence. That's why he couldn't win in his post-conviction claims because it was a lawful sentence. And so it may be the most ridiculous thing probably any reasonably-minded adult has ever heard. Think of the amount of money that Michigan residents spent to keep Michael incarcerated. Over three pounds of weed. Yet, the fact that we had to wait for a governor to commute his sentence in an act of executive clemency is evidence that the criminal justice system did not have its own remedy. It did not have a way to fix itself. Absolutely. And this isn't a case where the prosecutors agreed with us, the attorney general agreed with us. I mean, from my perspective, to get a prosecutor to write a press release saying how wrong a sentence is, that has never happened to me before. To get the attorney general on board has never happened in another case for me before. And still, it took me 18 months to bring him home. And not just me, thousands of people. You know, I'm his attorney, but there were thousands of people who who moved for change in Michael's case. Over 20,000 letters were written, celebrities got on board and were tweeting. You know, brilliant writers for major publications were telling his story. And I say that to say his story was out there. He had this celebrity support, this public support, this social movement going on about him, and it still took 18 months of very zealous advocacy. And and that 18 months doesn't even factor in the 23 years he fought before I even got on his case. It just shouldn't be this hard to fix something that's so obvious. And it also uh, speaks volumes about those who don't have that kind of support and are still inside that system, who don't know celebrities or who, do, who don't have access to Kim or to the governor. What would those guys do? Part of my belief system is that everybody should have access to adequate counsel. And that's why I drive a mint van and not a Maserati, because I, I do believe that just because I can charge more, I shouldn't. I think. This work should be accessible to people, but it just shouldn't be this much work, right? So people who don't, I have clients who have been incarcerated 20, 30 years, their parents have died. You don't meet long lasting relationships while incarcerated generally. I mean, people, I mean, there's like a prison pen pal system and a, you know, all of that, but that makes it hard for anyone to build lasting relationships with those on the outside. 
And so when someone's incarcerated 20 years, siblings lose touch, parents die, family members die. I have clients who have nobody on the outside. Nobody. They have nobody to put money on their books so they can call me. They have nobody to to do any of these things for them. And yeah, like you said, without resources, how do you how do you draw attention to these cases? And that's one thing I had to ask the prosecutor, okay, but you've looked at this case before. Like, thank you for doing the right thing now, but you've looked at this case before and you didn't do anything. How do we get consideration for people who aren't Michael who are in these same shoes? Well, if someone brings it to me, I'm like, well, we, it was brought to you. This is his third attempt at a clemency. It was brought to you before. Well, it didn't stand out amongst the crowd, and which is evidence that his volume of support made all the difference. And how you get that for everybody, it's, I don't know because there are so many stories like this. Yeah, and uh, our task is to cover each one of them. At least we will try to. And that's where, you know, we really appreciate uh, uh, working with uh, you and your uh, team and your organization, uh, which is, let me remind the listeners that it's uh, kimlawcrimlaw.com. And we would uh, continue uh, to talk to you uh, about cases and in fact talk about how we can get other exonerees or even those individuals who are still incarcerated how can we get them on the show so that we can get their voices out there in real time and also talk to those people who are supporting them you think that would be possible yeah absolutely i mean i I think there are the, the families of my clients want to tell these stories and so i think absolutely that would be totally possible well that would be fantastic and we would be looking forward to that if if they say that there are 2.2 million people in prison in the US what do you think because I try to find like a database that would give me an exact number of how many people are incarcerated who have wrongful convictions or probably who might also be innocent is it a database in regards to that or people that just have a idea So there's an exoneration registry that I believe is run by the University of Michigan, the National Registry of Exonerations, which is very difficult to measure because how we define exoneration makes a difference. So, you know, like I had a client who was convicted at 15. He pled guilty for a number of reasons having to do with resources and parenting and whatever. So. We reversed that conviction. In the end, we pled out because of concerns about a fair trial and and other issues to a term of, he'd already done 17 years, so we he pled to a term of 18 years. He's factually innocent of the case, but the risk of him being reconvicted and getting a life sentence was so great that we instead, you know, in the end of his decision, but instead opted for a safer choice. So he, for example, is not an exoneree, even though the evidence shows that the state withheld an admission by the actual shooter at the time of the crime, that they knew he had he had admitted to the crime and that they hid it from him. Even when we were appealing it 15 years later, they were hiding that information. So that wouldn't be considered an exoneration because he entered a plea in order to guarantee his release. And that happens often. And so the way we measure exoneration is very difficult. Um, I've seen statistics as high as 
of people are wrongfully convicted. And then I've seen, you know, half a percent. If you look at the cases we know for sure are innocence claims based on DNA, I believe it was the Innocence Project of study, which based on the statistics that have been turned over by DNA, if we were to extrapolate that out, it's like a half a percent. But a half a percent of two million is substantial, substantial number of people. So it's a half a percent of two million. That's like the most conservative. Yeah, which would be like about 15,000. Yeah. I went to art school and then law school, so math is not my strong suit. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the club. I went to journalism school, so <laughs> but I think it's like... Uh, uh, 10,000. Yeah, it's like 10,000 or 2 million. Okay, so we came pretty close. So 10,000, Yeah. don't you think that's like a pretty low number? Oh, I think a half a percent is extremely low. I think of all my clients who come to me and say I've been wrongfully convicted or I'm innocent, the vast majority of them in the end and and certainly there are prosecutors who make fun of me and think i'm naive and think i believe everyone is innocent but i have clients who come to me and say kim i got too much time can you help but the ones who come forward and say i'm innocent i've been wrongfully convicted i think probably 90 percent of them are telling the truth and i think the evidence supports that conclusion and so to me it seems you know if i have a hundred cases in a state with 40,000 incarcerated people and I'm one lawyer, you know, I, I handle a niche for sure. So I would have more than other lawyers, even in criminal law and criminal defense. But if I have a hundred cases like that in a state that incarcerates 40,000, that's substantial. Would that be like a cliche for me to say that, hey, how do you think we can put a stop, a permanent stop to wrongful or unjust convictions from occurring ever again. Would that be a stupid statement, a laughable statement, or is it something that can be worked on? No, it's something that can be worked on, and I think you're doing it. You're doing the work that's probably the most important in the system, which is to educate people, to tell the stories, to put it out in the media, because in the end, listeners, the public, they are jurors. And if jurors are critically thinking, if they're distrusting the information they're hearing, if they are considering the credibility of of witnesses, not just police and investigation witnesses, but the credibility of other witnesses who are involved in crimes. You know, if someone is getting a deal to testify against someone else, that should be viewed with very, very grave suspicion. If an officer has done a crap investigation, if they've decided from the first second of the crime who's guilty, that should be viewed with very grave suspicion. And so when we tell these stories that indicate how false confessions happen, how wrongful convictions happen, how these mistakes are made, we are generating a body of jurors who can do a better job and who can prevent wrongful convictions. And I think the most important part of change in the criminal justice system is to change the mindset of the people who operate within the system from judges and prosecutors to jurors and jurors have the most ability to make change and so when people get that jury service summons and think like oh my god I don't want to do this what I hope they're thinking is I have a chance to prevent a wrongful conviction I have a chance to hold the state to their burden of proof beyond all reasonable doubt and so I think this is it this is this is why I take time out of my legal advocacy to to tell the story of like what my clients are going through and what my office is going through and trying to make these changes.
And on that note, I thank you for your time today and for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and hopefully we can talk again soon. I occasionally put updates on my Instagram, which is Kim Law Crim Law, and you can find some tidbits about certain cases that I'm working or certain changes that are happening within criminal justice or changes that we want to happen. And so that might be a good resource if, if anyone is interested in following along on what um, my office is doing. I hope today's episode shed some light on how the U.S. justice system works. Join us next time for another episode of Fair Play on JusticeNews.net, where we talk about injustices without any fear, contempt, or intimidation. It was a pleasure to be your host today. Imran Siddiqui is signing out. Peace. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net.